Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you highlights of CES 2014 and look at the PC building trends in the United States. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McKay. It's good to be back with the podcast a little late this month. Yeah, by the time that uh, this is recorded, we had a CES show, you had a Vegas vacation. Yeah, a little had... dueling Vegas action. Yeah, and I believe we both came back ill. <laughs> what happens in Vegas comes home and puts you to bed. Wait yeah. a minute, that didn't sound so good. Yeah, that definitely wasn't the approved Vegas <laughs> marketing. But anyway, we're back and there's lots to talk about. But that little time shift gives us an opportunity to look back on CES with a little bit of perspective. So I thought that might be a fun way to start off the new year. All right. So what do you uh, what do you want to know? You posted a lot of articles on HardwareAsylum.com about CES in nutshells. And I thought it'd give us an opportunity to just talk about the highlights a little bit. So uh, I don't know where we want to start. Maybe Silverstone? Sure, Silverstone. So let's talk about Silverstone. I know that we are mid-giveaway on a Silverstone product. Right, yeah, we have the custom-painted Raven 2 that has also been upgraded with some AP-182 fans. That's the 180-millimeter Monsters. Comes with a Silverstone power supply. And, of course, the custom orange that used to be on a Lamborghini. Benefit to you guys, not only is the podcast delayed, but we've also delayed the closing of that contest, so you can still get in on that thing. That brings us back to Silverstone. I know one of your very favorite manufacturers. Yeah, I do love a lot of what Silverstone does. And every year they have something new to show. This time, the highlight was the Raven 5. So what makes the Raven 5 so special? Well, they brought back the inverted motherboard placement that was popular on the original Raven, the Raven 2, and the Raven 3. So that sounds exciting. But if you're not familiar with an inverted motherboard position yeah what exactly does that do that might not be actually the best description but (laughs) normally in your pc the motherboard is facing such that the processor is at the top of the case and your video cards are at the bottom of the case some cases actually flip that over so that the video cards are at the top of the case and the processors at the bottom that kind of gives you better airflow to you know the fans and stuff like that well with the raven cases they've turned it on its side so that when the video card is exhausting out of your case, it's exhausting straight up. Oh, interesting. So how does the cabling work on that? It comes out the top and goes out the back, basically. So there's a little channel at the the very top of the case and a shroud that kind of covers it. So the cables go up and out through the back, you know, in the traditional manner, except that there's no panel on the back where things plug in. Well, it sort of makes sense because heat rises, So if your cards are exhausting, why not use that to your advantage? Right. And it allows you to put larger fans at the bottom of the case and naturally pull in the cool air at the bottom and positively exhaust it out the top. So the Raven 5 is a full-size case? Full-size case, but in a slightly different configuration. And I say that because they don't have a whole poop ton of drive base. Like in the original Raven 2 that were given away in the Raven 3, there was a stacker sort of configuration of five and a quarter bays in the front of the case. And that's been very popular. That has. But with the current PC building trends, I believe, you know, people are not putting in five and a quarter inch 
optical drives anymore. Well, I know with the advent of cloud and all that buzzwordy sort of stuff, most yeah. folks are not buying as much physical media. And that's true with movies, music, and gaming. Right. With the current trends kind of leaning toward, you know, grabbing everything off the network and relying on your fast internet, which let me know if there's a fast internet around where we live, but fast enough, I suppose. Yeah, fast enough in congestion of Netflix and stuff like that. But I digress. With the Raven 5, they took out the five and a quarter bays, and then they only put in like three or four, three and a half inch that would double for your two and a half inch. So the inside of the case is very open. Because the drive bays are gone, it's also very compact. So while it's a full-size case, it doesn't look like a full-size case. And this is a steel case, an aluminum case. I know they're famous for aluminum cases. Yeah, this is a steel-wrapped case with plastic panels, which is typical for the Ravens. And uh, they used a different sort of mesh. They're kind of a, it's an elongated sort of grid pattern on the top. So, you know, they experiment with, with the Raven-style cases and use different designs and different configurations for things. And this is really just pushing the evolution of that design. I think one of the nice things about Silverstone and the Raven series in general is they don't look and act like a lot of the cookie-cutter cases on the market. So you really are getting something a little unique with a lot of personality. Right, and then you have a lot of companies that are kind of emulating that. You know, for instance, Thermaltake was showing a brand-new case, the V31, I believe. You know, my rep there was saying, hey, this kind of looks a little bit like the Mac Pro, but, you know, (laughs) the Mac Pro had... Basically, you look at the front of it, and there was a couple of handles at the very top, and they were rounded over, but then the, the case itself was square. Well, this case kind of re- rotated that so that the edges were round in the front and the back and the bottom, so it looked like a, a rounded square from the profile, but from the front, it was all square. He said it kind of looked like a Mac Pro. I'm thinking it looks a lot like a Fortress from Silverstone. Interesting. Or the Bitfenix has had the rounded edges for a while, too. You know, everybody kind of borrows different things from everybody else, and they use what works. That's true. Well, looking forward to the Silverstone Raven 5. Uh, Who else did you visit? Let's see. I visited with EVGA, another favorite of mine, and they had two products that were actually kind of highlights of the show for me. Okay. The first one was a gaming mouse called the Torx. Interesting. Now, I didn't know EVGA made gaming mice. Uh, Well... They do now. <laughs> Very true. And that is also a trend we've talked about before on the podcast with major manufacturers branching out into other related, well, not just peripherals, but related things. Yeah, they expand their their market share. Yeah. And in the case of EVGA, they build video cards and motherboards, and they're kind of designed for overclocking and gaming. Gaming right. is a huge part of it. They even run like gaming servers, so it makes sense that they're going to have a set of gaming peripherals. It does. So what did you like about the Torx mouse? The Torx mouse was, it's a laser mouse. It's ambidextrous, which is not common for gaming mice at all. Very true. They had three different versions. The top end actually had real carbon fiber side panels. Ooh, now that sounds exciting. You know, it has a weight system. You pull off the top cover and you can adjust the weights. It has software that EVGA has been writing to control the, you know, the DPI and the colors. You can change any color you want on it. Nice. Um, let's see the cable silver. Oh, you know, it doesn't have just copper in there. It's a silver coated copper cable. 
and that's the USB cable that runs that connects it to your computer. Well, that's the first I've heard of that. Yeah, supposedly silver does um, you know better with the electricity or something like that. Well, at that level, any advantage is an advantage. Yeah, or it could be just snake belly oil. <laughs> Time will tell if it catches on. Yep. We've seen a lot of these mice, and some are great. And and some, some not so much. Not so much. Yeah. What was the second thing? Oh, the kingpin card. Now, how did I know that was going to be the case? Well, probably because I told you. <laughs> well, and you have to be living under a rock to not see that the kingpin edition of the 780 Ti is making news everywhere. Right. Some good, some bad, at least at the initial launch. The card that they had on display was, you know, basically a production model. They were showing off the new cooler, some of the internals, and, you know, basically talking to the public about why you'd want to buy this card. Why is it better than the reference, not the reference card, but the regular classified card. And basically that Vince had helped design the card and they really liked the way it turned out and they put his name on it. It's nice to see some named overclockers getting some press and some products named after them that aren't just developed in their own house. Right. And this one is one of those that it went through a real product cycle. Vince said, you know, he spends a lot of time overclocking and that's really his primary job at EBGA. So he would be testing classified cards with certain memory configurations. Right. And then suggesting, hey, let's build a card with this memory and see what it does. And then it's like, well, let's tweak the the VRM, the, the PLL power delivery, so that it responds better under load and under liquid nitrogen. Now, I've seen some great pictures, and for those of you that haven't had a chance to check this out, it is available right now on the Hardware Asylum website, yeah, the first of, of what I think is a series of articles. Yeah, I'm going to try to do two articles. The first one is just your basic review of the card. Right. So this is the card that was available on the 22nd of January, and I believe I got the only review sample. Wow, that's kind of nice. And the initial review I've read through it shows a distinct, if not large, advantage over the regular classified card. Right. There, there's a couple, of, a couple of things you need to realize about the Kingpin Edition card. Right. The first one is that it is the fastest GTX 780 tie that you can buy. If I'm not mistaken, new records were posted. Right. Now, you have to put those into context. Okay. So, I say that this is the fastest 780 tie that you can buy. And that is due impartial to the faster memory that's being used on the card right. and the fact that it has a higher base and boost clock over even the regular tie classified. So this is sort of the super, super of cards. Right. Now, the card is designed for sub-zero overclocking. That was how it was tuned and how it was built. The evidence of that is when you look at my overclocking results, they aren't really that great. And that's because the BIOS was not tuned for air overclocking. It was tuned for air superiority at the default clock. And that's something that they can tune for. I saw on Facebook, and I'm looking right now at a huge, huge batch of LN2. Yeah, my big doer over here, my 120 liters of so I'm guessing that going sub-zero is only moments away. Yeah, just a couple of days, that's for sure. As you'd mentioned, that there was a couple of world records that were 
broken with this card not too long ago. The reason for that is because of liquid nitrogen overclocking. And that is where this card actually shines. And when you start to bring the temperature down, then you can start scaling the memory and also the GPU. So soon we'll see what this thing can really do. Yeah, hopefully I have enough skill to make that work. I'm looking forward to it. One question, though. Mm -hmm. How much do you pay to get this beast, or can you get it on the open market? Oh, that is an interesting question because, as I mentioned, January 22nd was the day that the card launched. Right. They sold out three days later. Oh, no. The curse of all good high-end overclocking cards. Right. And, you know, this is a limited production. EVGA says it's the build-to-order, which... I'm going to say is code for we will build more if people want them. So if you really want this card, you need to tell EVJ that you need to make more. Keep asking, or you'll be held hostage on eBay and get yeah. one for some astronomical price. Yeah, $1,500 or something oh, like that. Oh, ouch. Terrific. EVGA, very exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what the campaign card could do. Right. Now, speaking of overclocking, there were two overclocking events that happened during CES. Okay. The first one was an official event, which was the HyperX OC event. Ooh. And that was hosted by Kingston. And also they had worldwide qualifiers hosted on HWBot, or HardwareBot, as I'm going to call it. (laughs) That works. So did you get a chance to attend those events? I did, but uh, the nature of being a media personality at CES is that you get to attend a lot of different media events. And I had an appreciation dinner to attend right before the closing of that overclocking event. Oh, no. So I got to see the middle portion, and I got to see the middle portion of that event, in which Splave was in the lead at one point, or second place. He had a chance to take the lead, but he had a bad XTU score and didn't quite make it, unfortunately. Well, it still sounds like a lot of fun. Did you learn anything, pick up any tips or tricks? No, not so much. Although I did pick up the fact that if I wanted to actually cover the overclocking event, I need to be there during the prep so I can start asking questions instead of asking why they are benchmarking and stuff like that. Oh, well, good to know for next time. Yeah, definitely. The other overclocking event was the Gigabyte OC Gathering, which also leads me to an article I wrote, which we can talk about a little bit later. Perfect. The overclocking gathering was, I want to say... An extension of a similar one that happened in Taiwan after Computex this last year. So I take from the gathering description that this is less of a competition and more of a party? Yeah, it's kind of like a party. I view it as a way for Gigabyte to pull in people to check out their stuff before the show happened. And they just kind of use the overclockers as a an attraction. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. So they got hands-on at least with the latest and greatest Gigabyte gear. Right. There was four or five overclockers that came in and were setting up. They were using Gigabyte hardware, which they got to keep afterwards, which is, you know, kind of lucky for them. Yeah, that's nice. You know, there was um, Stepans from Florida was coming up and I watched him prep his board and he basically covered the entire thing with liquid electrical tape. Oh. Which waterproofs the board, but as you and I both know, Idaho and Vegas are extremely dry. Very true. Like in the teens in terms of humidity. If that. Yeah. So, you know, at the conclusion of his overclocking world record that he got a couple days later, they were benching four 290Xs for like eight hours or six hours or something like that. Not a drop of water on the board at all. Wow. Yeah. So 
that's a lot of nitrogen to be pouring for a long time, and that's going to bring a lot of condensation. But if there's no water in the air, it's not going to get on your stuff. Not a bad environment for that. Any records come out of that? There were two records. One was the Unigen record for cards, and that was Stepan's record. Very nice. Vivi also set a couple of them, one as part of a gigabyte competition, and another one, I believe, as just him showing off. <laughs> well, if you got the hardware... Yeah, you might as well do it, right? Well, two great parties, but what else did you see at the show? Steam machines were huge at CES this year. Oh, now that's something I'm kind of eyeballing because I'm a big Steam user, as you know. Right. And I've watched this evolution of their well, their TV service and the ability to use a regular computer as a Steam PC on my big screen. Right. Well, what was the first one that they had? It was like... It was called Big Picture Mode, and it actually gives you the ability to port supported Steam titles to your big screen and lets you use a controller. So you could have a, uh, like most folks use a wireless Xbox controller or a PlayStation 3 controller, but there are a lot of uh, Windows controllers out there, and you can use that to control it on your big screen. Right, so with the Steam OS, that's basically a dedicated operating system to do the same thing. Yeah, but the big advantage of Steam's OS is that it is for more or for lesser proprietary build of Linux. Right, and makes it free. Yeah, and that keeps the cost down, but it means that they are porting more and more Steam games over to Linux for the Linux support users out there, and it also gives you the ability to build a very low-cost gaming PC that, in theory, will eventually compete with the Playstations and Xboxes. Right. Now, here's the kicker. So the Steam boxes that were shown at CES, they were basically small form factor PCs with large discrete graphics cards running Intel Core i7 processors on a micro, not micro, mini ITX motherboard. That's a fairly expensive build. Expensive is kind of, yeah, it's a good way to put it. The thing is with the Steam box that are being ported they're gaming machines that are designed to be hooked up to your television right they are for all intents and purposes a desktop replacement for a game that makes sense with the small form factor you could build a dedicated home theater slash steam box and have the best of both worlds as opposed to trying to do the remote and the streaming that we see folks trying to do now with their pc games and it's just not the same it's not really, but I also kind of see the Steam boxes as being um, unnecessary, at least in how they're being built, because they're being built as an actual gaming rig. Of course, you can use the dedicated graphics within the, the CPU, but you're not going to get a lot of high-resolution 1080p sort of gameplay out of it. That's uh -huh. why you need to have the extra power. Well, hence the giant video cards. In the Steam boxes that I'm seeing, some are upgradable and some are not, at least in the... I guess, beta version, since one of these isn't actually out. Right. And the ones that I saw were from Digital Storm, in which they built a, a, a custom chassis and a modular sort of box on top of it. So you could put in a GTX Titan, my, uh, mini ITX motherboard, and water cooling. And then uh, CyberPower PC had a similar sort of system that supported a GTX Titan, you know, long graphics card. And they didn't have water cooling, but they had um, SFX power supply and a custom chassis that mimicked a lot of their Fang series of 
laptops and stuff. Interesting. So the boutique builders are already on board. That's a good sign. Yeah. And these were all small form factor things with some lights. Um, the Digital Storm actually had a controller to control all the fans in the system, basically overriding them from the BIOS controls, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And CyberPower had custom lighting effects. I want to say that they had the nicer looking chassis because it was it looked like a game box. It looked kind of like an Xbox or what an Xbox could look like. Very interesting. Now, I noticed that the small form factor, again, is making an appearance. Yeah, it's never really gone away, but I want to say it's never really caught on in the U.S. market. Well, I think the problem is that the custom builders like the flexibility of a larger case. And when you build a small form factor machine, because I know I have in the past, you kind of lock yourself into a specific build, and when it's time to upgrade, it's not always compatible. No, it's the Apple effect. You have to pick it up and drop it on the trash and start over. Well, and that kind of is why the micro ATX machines seem to be a little more appealing in general. But like you say, they're just not catching on because the difference between that and a full-size machine isn't really there cost-wise. So all you're really looking at is space factor. Right. And as a lot of people like to say, us in America, we're bigger and we have bigger stuff, right? We got space. Yeah. <laughs> And you can run a lot of ambient cooling in a bigger case to keep the temperature and the sound down, which is, I think, more important to most U.S. folks. When you put a machine in your living room, you don't want to hear it. No. What else do we see in your CES? I see you've got some other articles, not just about your builders, but you've got one about the time shift in general. Oh, yes, the time shift. And this was an article that I wrote to basically say that the podcast is going to be late this month. <laughs> yeah, and that is really an unfortunate coincidence, so we're glad you stuck with us. Yeah. So when the time shift, I basically kind of ripped on all the companies for the CES sideshow. Now, we've talked about this before. This is a trend that's been growing for a couple of years. Yeah, several. But to clarify, when you talk about the sideshow... What you're really saying is that the vendors are spending less time on the floor and more time somewhere else. Right. I'm going to say eight years ago, for instance, um, you could wander the show floor in South Hall and you could see Cooler Master. Right. Cooler Master had a lot of their cases on display, a lot of their coolers. You had reps that you could talk to. Asus was just down the hall. Vendors were on the show floor, actively showing off what they had. As CES has kind of morphed, it's more about personal electronics and not so much about the PC, which is kind of a trend in the U.S. I mean, the PC isn't being regarded as something that you build anymore, something that you upgrade. It's, something, it's a commodity, something that you buy. You either buy a special one from a boutique builder or you buy something from you know, a friend down the street, or you buy something from Dell. Well, and that's a byproduct of competition and, and lower margins. You used to be able to save an amazing amount of money building your own. Now, you don't save much money, if any at all, but you get, in my opinion at least, higher quality components, or at least that's the impression from picking your own. Right. For the manufacturers, they're also trying to save money. Right. And since the U.S. market isn't as big as it used to be, I don't think that they can justify spending the cost to be on the CES floor and not have anybody come by. Or they're looking for a quieter meeting room to meet with potential buyers and sellers and also the media. So they adopted what I call the CES sideshow, 
where they are taking advantage of the media personality and the media drive of CES. Right. And just inviting people to their hotel suite to talk about the latest review gear, what they have new. You know, EVGA has always been in the Bellagio, for what I can remember. Oh, wait, no, they were in the wind for a couple of years. Cooler Master has kind of taken up shop in the Palms. You know, there's a lot of them at Caesar. Some of the guys are at MGM Grand. And if you know anything about Vegas, none of those hotels are close to each other. <laughs> no. In fact, it's not very fast to get around in Vegas at all, even by taxi. Well, taxi is expensive. This year, I elected to rent a car, which I'm going to say made my CES a lot more enjoyable. Well, how so? Uh, well, I was able to stay off strip instead of staying on strip and relying on the shuttle service or taxis, right? which was cheaper. I could just get on the freeway, go from my hotel down to the strip, park in one of the parking garages for free, take the shuttle to the convention center or um, walk to the hotel that I need to go to. You know, For instance, I could go to the Mirage, take the shuttle from the Mirage to the convention center. Right. Or I could just go to the MGM, park in the parking garage, walk across, and you know I don't have to pay because I'm not close to the convention center. Well, and that makes a lot of sense if you have to go to a different hotel for every vendor, which seems a little odd. I'm very surprised that a secondary gathering location hasn't popped up. It would make sense, at least from the attendee standpoint, but I'm not sure the vendors uh, see the advantage. They have a captive audience, I guess. Well, yeah, and they have a lot of internal competition. I mean, these are Taiwanese companies, and they are battling for the large emerging markets, which is like China, right. for instance. I mean, more than half of their products go to China and Iran and Middle East and all those places. Not so much comes to the U.S., partially because of the dwindling U.S. market for PCs, I, I want to say, and also the fact that it costs a lot for companies to do business in the U.S. With the manufacturers actually being in the hotel rooms, that allows them to take advantage of the media, per se, but it makes it really hard for media and for salespeople to actually find them. And you can't make new contacts that way. For instance, it took me several years to know that Asus was held up in the Trump Tower. And I guess like one of their CEOs owns one of the condos in there or something like that, and then he rents out the entire floor for the CES show. Oh, big show. Yeah. So it makes it hard for somebody that doesn't know that to go in and actually try to meet somebody new, make a new contact. And if you send off an email and you don't get a response, then it's, they let you know they don't want you to work with them or something like that. So it's like a double-edged sword. I mean, they get control, but they are losing the potential to expand, which is the side effect of what we just talked about. Yeah, this isolation. So what I kind of proposed in my time shift was that these companies need to start working together and actually take advantage of the CES sideshow. They don't have to be part of CES, but at least be in like the same place. You know, pool your resources and rent like the entire convention center at Caesars, for instance. You yeah. know, they could all fit in there and they could have their own room. CES B. Yeah. You know, and that way hardware media can go and just basically wander around, talk to the people they want to talk to, get everything they need to see, and spend the rest of the time actually enjoying CES. That's the one thing I missed this year. I was not able to go to the CES show floor. You know, I got to see a couple of cars and everything, but that's basically North and Central Hall. I didn't get to South Hall at all. Well, that's unfortunate because 
you don't have the opportunity to discover anything new at all. Yeah, I didn't get to see the little robot flyers. I didn't get to see the, I guess there was a a, a seal that they were marketing to nursing homes to huh. help them get better. You know how cats and dogs in nursing homes are supposed to help the patients get better? Yeah. Well, they figured that some people were uh, had bad experiences with cats and dogs, so they invented a robot seal that would do the same thing, which I'm not sure if that actually is a good thing or not, but that was one of the exhibits at CES that I would have liked to see that I uh, got to see on a video instead. Yeah, there's always something that is new and different. It's just a shame you don't have time to see it all. Yeah, unfortunately. Looking at my notes, we had one other thing to talk about in this particular segment, which was PC building trends. We've talked a little bit about the PC building trends as we've passed through. I know we started with the Raven and also a little bit But in general, I know you saw a pretty major trend in PC building developing. And we have hinted at it, but what was it exactly? That people aren't building PCs anymore. Or at least they're building them with a different end game in mind. Right. They're building specialized PCs, stuff that you can't normally buy from Dell or HP or Compact or any of those companies. Which makes sense. Every year it gets harder and harder to justify building your own machine unless it is specialized. Right. So gaming rigs, for instance, that is one situation where you'd want to build your own computer. That way you can get the latest processor. You can upgrade into a graphics card that is decent for what you want. You can either buy one and do an SLI later. You can start with air cooling and then add water cooling later. And that's all based off of buying components and buying the components that you need for a certain purpose. Right. You can't really do that if you get an OEM system. Of course, if you have the cash up front, you can go to a company like CyberPower or even Digital Storm and order a PC. Well, that's interesting because that reminds me of the early days when you buy a PC from, oh gosh, even early HP or some of those other companies that are no longer with us. And you were stuck because you didn't have any upgradability at all. Well, even like with Micron PCs, they coded the BIOS so you couldn't change the processor. Wow, that's just crazy. But are we headed back to that? Is that what we're seeing? I want to say so. I mean, you have a brand new Surface right in front of you right now. Yes. That, that is the trend in the U.S. Well, and even Apple, who's, you know, kind of the trend setter, for better or for worse, they're uh, not even allowing you to change batteries on their laptops anymore let alone go into their systems and update a video card. Yeah, so the the trends in the U.S. are actually bad. But then, you know, you ask a company like Gigabyte, well, where's all your money coming from? So, oh, we sold like one billion motherboards last year. It's like, where do they go? Yeah, where are they going? <laughs> well, I guess they're all going to China and the Middle East. Really what we're seeing is that in the emerging markets, they're still building PCs. It's fresh and new, but we've maybe evolved past that. At least that's the impression. Well, they say the U.S. is, what, 10 years, 8 years ahead of the rest of the world? Well, depending on the market, but yeah. You know, maybe in 8 years' time, that's the way it's going to be. But if we look at the hardware that's available, for instance, you know, Intel is working on low-power processors. AMD has been on that path for a really long time. So they have, like the Trinity chips, for instance, you know, what is it, 10 watts or something like that. NVIDIA is really heavily invested in ARM technology so that they can build chips for cell phones and tablets. 
all of this stuff is very low power and it's designed for small form factor. And that I want to say, thanks to Apple is, you know, the iPod or iPhone effect. Everything's being smaller, more designed for consumption of information and media instead of the creation of media, which is, you know, 10 years ago, everybody in the U S was actually creating things. We were creating things on the web. We were creating graphics. It was a very different shift from being a print sort of situation to being a digital situation. Very true. Nowadays, all that stuff is automated. So for me, publishing an article on my website is actually, you know, it's a two-step process, but it's extremely easy now. Whereas before I would have to sit down for several hours to go and create an article and push it out to the website. That is how a lot of the websites are now. Well, and you're not even taking into account the convergence trend that everybody's talking about. That's being driven in part by Microsoft as well. We're moving to a common architecture, a common software core, where everything is cross-compatible, which gives us a really great user experience, but it doesn't really allow for you to think outside of the box. No, that's Windows 8. You have Windows 8, you have Windows 8 RT, you have the Xbox interface. All of those are very similar. They all have the little tiles, the Metro can feel. It's all touch-enabled. Intel is really heavily invested into touch. And I want to say that that's partially because of Android and also the iPad. The problem with touch is that you can't create anything with touch. You can't be a content creator with a touch interface. You still have to use a mouse and a keyboard. So, Well, it's just too clumsy, and that makes sense. But it really is creating a divide back to where we started. You know, you either have a consumption device or you have a creation device, which is, well, it's a specialty build. Right. As we saw with the Raven 5, it doesn't have an optical drive or space for an optical drive. So if you want to have, you know, a Blu-ray machine to watch movies, you need to get an external Blu-ray drive, plug it in USB 3. The difference now is USB 3 is fast enough that it can play or stream a Blu-ray video through that interface. So that's kind of the trend. Now you don't use optical drives as much. I mean, I have one. I use it to convert drivers so I can put them on my network or watch a Blu-ray movie. That's the only time I ever really use it. Before that, I had a, a really, really nice DVD player. I think I maybe used it 10 times. <laughs> I think I've got one of those sitting on a shelf just in case I need it. Yeah, so you and me, you know, we're hardware enthusiasts. We like this stuff. I don't think I could buy a case without a five and a quarter bay just because I want to have that option to put that in there. But with cases, new cases now coming out without that option, you kind of have to rethink all that. Well, you know, we may be biased. I remember when we said the same thing about floppy drives. It goes back evolutionary, back as far as you can think. You know, that may just be a paradigm based on what we're used to. That's very true. So if anyone has any comments or questions about the topics in this podcast, please email us at podcast at hardwareasylum.com or drop by our Facebook page at slash hardware asylum. Thanks for joining us. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Join us on Facebook or follow us on Google. This has been an Angel Lane production, copyright 2014. Thanks for listening.